Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Kevin Cullen, Vice President of Innovation and Economic Development at King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST in Saudi Arabia. Kevin is a leader in global innovation with expertise in both economic development and industry engagement. As vice president of KAUST Innovation, Kevin leads the university's intellectual property portfolio, helps create and support new businesses, joint ventures, and collaborations with industry partners, and continues to foster a strong culture of entrepreneurship at KAUST. Kevin has over 20 years of experience in academic innovation and business development. Throughout his career, Kevin has helped elevate university-based innovation enterprises that have led to the launch of more than 250 startups, as well as numerous products and services. Prior to joining KAUS, Kevin spent six years as CEO of Innovations at the University of New South Wales, also known as UNSW, in Sydney, Australia. Kevin helped transform UNSW from a traditional commercialization unit into an innovation hub by supporting a broad range of university priorities, including economic development and social impact. Kevin helped change the debate around university industry engagement in Australia. He was commissioned by the Australian government to produce a report on the most effective ways to build connections between academia and industry. Most recently, he was appointed to the New South Wales Innovation and Productivity Committee, where he was charged with introducing new approaches to innovation and economic development at the state level. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thank you, Lisa. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, thanks so much again for taking part in the podcast, Kevin. It's really great to have you here. Kevin, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Saudi Arabia? Uh, Yeah, quite a long journey. Um, I studied chemistry at the University of Edinburgh. I did my PhD at the University of Edinburgh. And then my first job was working for Procter & Gamble. So I went from doing chemistry research into formulating dishwashing liquids and laundry detergents. Wow. And to be honest, that's probably where I got, you know, the first buzz from seeing technology being put to use, seeing something you've worked on on the supermarket shelf. Um, So after Procter & Gamble, I went to work at Herrick Watt University in Edinburgh. That was my first tech transfer job there for about five years. Then I worked at the University of Glasgow for 11 years. I was the director of research and enterprise at the University of Glasgow. So very much about how do you get the university research into use? How do you build partnerships with people who are the research users? And that was probably where I developed my philosophy you know, it, it, maybe it's overstating it, but my philosophy is about it's not IP commercialization. It's about getting human knowledge 
into the hands of people who can use it to do something good. You know, and it was at the University of Glasgow where I think I achieved probably my maximum fame or infamy when I introduced Easy Access IP, which was giving IP away for free to anyone who could tell me how they were going to use it. And talk about polarizing. Yeah, very polarizing, <laughs> yes. Uh, some, some people said, this is what we should be doing. Other people said, this is heresy. This is, you know, betrayal. Um, and that was in 2010. In 2011, I u- moved to the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Um, I don't believe it's because I was booted out of Glasgow. I was, I, was, I have to admit, I was wondering if you got kind of got run out of the country. No. <laughs> okay, I, 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 I'm glad you've confirmed what I was subconsciously thinking. No, no, I was not booted out of the country for having given away IP. And I mean, over the course of the next three or four years, Easy Access IP grew to about 50 different universities. And actually, the last ASTP thing that I did was whatever happened to Easy Access IP. And my answer is, it's just become part of the terrain. It's just become part of the territory. People will now give away IP. It's not the exception anymore. It's not the exception anymore. People will take other benefits from the collaborations rather than trying to maximize the dollars that flow from the. So 2011, I moved to the University of New South Wales introduced Easy Access IP there as well. And I think it was within about 18 months. Every university in New South Wales had basically adopted the same model because they'd been watching what was happening in Glasgow and they'd seen Glasgow do it and then King's College London and then Bristol. And, you know, it it just gathered a a bit of momentum. Um, So I was at UNSW until 2018. And it was at the end of 2017, I got a phone call from someone saying, we're from King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. And I'm what's that? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so they were looking for um, a new vice president for innovation. And I, I had a long, you know, Skype call with, with the recruitment agency. And then I had a long Skype call with the HR people. And they said, could you be in New York next week for an interview? So I had to fly from Sydney to New York for an interview, which went very well. Um, They then said, could you come to visit Koust? And so my wife and I went and visited Koust and I was like, wow. You can't appreciate Koust until you've seen Koust. In terms of the science that they're doing, the facilities that they have, you know, the research capability that they have, And also for me, the ambition that they have, they really are about making a difference to the nation and the world through scientific research. Every university talks about that, but not every university lives that. And we all know that most universities, if it comes to research versus anything else, research is going to take priority. The thing I love about KAUST is they genuinely do see that second mission, the second part of the dual mission as being a critical part of the fabric of the university. So in January 2018, I rocked up at King Abdullah University of Science and Technology and became VP for 
innovation and economic development. Wow, that's a really incredible journey. Talk about being from in Scotland down to Australia and, and now in Saudi Arabia. And and I think that's a good segue. I wanted to ask you for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with Kaos and its tech transfer office, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, King Abdullah University of Science and Technology was founded by royal decree in 2009. So it's pretty young. It's absolutely, it's a baby. You, yeah. you know, remember I was at Glasgow, founded 1451. Yeah. So there's a bit of an age difference. Um, but the king said, we will create a world-class university that's going to be a beacon for humanity and help drive prosperity globally. Addressing things that are challenges for the kingdom, for the region and the world. And the four founding research pillars were food, water, energy, environment. In my line of work, you know, it's difficult to imagine four areas that have a clearer line of sight to transfer and application. You know, there's no Celtic theology and there's no medieval poetry. And so the first 10 years of KAUST really was focused on driving the research agenda, which is absolutely right. Absolutely right. Because everyone knows that universities are judged on the research. And KAUST has, I think, four years in a row been number one in the world for number of citations per member of faculty. Wow, that's really impressive. That, that, that's yeah. a key measure for a university that's now only about 12 years old to to be topping the league tables. That was really fast. Yeah. Um, so KAUST put in place fabulous research. They put in place the core labs, which have the best research equipment in the world, genuinely, and doing brilliant science. So they brought me in and said, what are we going to do with this science? And so um, I always describe my job as getting research put to use. And I genuinely don't, Mind, I don't care whether that's through a license agreement, through a research collaboration, through a startup company. You know, there are so many different mechanisms by which we get it put to use. And, you know, I, I've often said that I think we focus too much on IP, licensing and commercialization, whereas the statistics I've got show that that only makes up 2% of the revenue that flows from industry into the university sector. Research collaboration, contract research, get professional development and consultancy make up 31% of the revenue compared to 2% from IP. So if you, if you view your job as getting the knowledge flowing into the hands of people who can use it, consultancy and professional education are much more efficient ways than IP licensing. And this is usually the point at which people will say, why do you hate IP so much? And I keep saying, I don't, I don't. It has a place. It absolutely has a place. But I worry that we drifted down this pathway of because some IP is valuable, we'll assume all IP is valuable, we'll negotiate all IP as if it's worth a billion dollars. And that's what's led to so much of the inertia yeah. in our line of work. And I think there's a problem, too, that people don't think that maybe an invention is valuable because there's no IP about around it. Let's say like a social innovation type of thing. Yeah. And I disagree with that absolutely and profoundly. It's if you're getting the university's knowledge into the hands of people who do something useful with it, that's what I think tech transfers for. 
Well, I wanted to ask you, I'm curious, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are curious as well about some of the differences um, maybe in terms of tech transfer in Saudi Arabia compared to maybe other places like the U.S. or, or Europe. Yeah, I, I mean, there are some underlying differences because there there hasn't been a history or tradition of tech transfer in Saudi Arabia. There isn't a history or tradition of research-intensive companies. Therefore, you don't have that sort of, sort of corporate base to work with. I say that, though, and we'll point to the fact that in the early 2000s, I was sitting in Glasgow saying, we don't have enough business investment in R&D. And then I was sitting in Sydney in 2011 with the government going, we don't have enough business investment in R&D. So, you know, it's a story I've heard many times before. Um, so it, the fact that the country is quite new to it is both a challenge because you don't have the, the pool of expertise, but also an opportunity of being able to just leapfrog the the mistakes others have made. But, you know, my punchline on this, and it always is that it doesn't matter where in the world you are doing tech transfer. The challenges are exactly the same. Yeah, that's one thing I've learned from doing this podcast now. Regardless of who I speak to and where they're from, the challenges are, are it's, it's amazing how similar they are. Yeah, sometimes they'll be more acute in one area exactly. and more chronic in another area. But what we're dealing with here is academics doing academic research and then trying to find ways of getting the outputs of that into the hands of entrepreneurs or investors or corporates or it, it genuinely doesn't matter who. And, you know, I could be sitting in Glasgow speaking to a Saudi inventor about a collaboration with an Australian company, or I can be sitting in Saudi Arabia speaking to an Australian academic about a collaboration with a Scottish company. It is genuinely a global business. We, we could talk about, you know, the SME base and the local entrepreneurial ecosystem and all of that stuff. And that does matter. Um, but as I say, I, I think the fundamental challenges of translating what is very often, you know, an accidental byproduct of research into something useful, valuable, creating benefits in the economy, society and community. It doesn't matter if you're in Sydney or Glasgow or Jeddah. Now, I'm curious, is there much government involvement in tech transfer or is it it's strictly done on the local level at the university? Uh, both. I mean, the government in Saudi Arabia is massively interested in this space. Uh, recently, the Saudi Authority for IP was created. It didn't exist about two, three years ago. So the government is most definitely seeing you know, innovation as part of the way that we're going to deliver Vision 2030. Vision 2030 is the Crown Prince's plan for how we're going to translate the economy from being completely dominated by oil into a more diverse economy uh, to bring more people into the workforce and everything else. So, yes, there's a lot of interest. There's lots of working groups and everything else. Um, and sometimes that's really helpful and sometimes... Just the same as in Glasgow or in Sydney, sometimes it's not so helpful. Um, but I think in general, the country is certainly heading in the right direction in terms of the importance of research and innovation as drivers of the economy. And part of what I'm there for is to make sure that they don't inadvertently fall into that trap 
that we've all seen people fall into and that I've fallen into in the past of, okay, so you've got Taxol, Lyrica, Gardasil, you've got billion-dollar pharmaceuticals, yeah. I, IP. Yeah. So let's have some of those. It's the same as the startup program, when's our first unicorn? But if we keep doing this, it will happen. But if you become obsessed and fixated on that being the reason why you're doing it, then you're going to be disappointed and disappointed. Yeah, disappointed. And it's never fast enough if, if that's what your eye is set on, you know, if yeah. that's what your goal is. And so that's my analogy. And I'm saying with IP, get the IP out, get the, get the knowledge out into the hands of people who can use it. And then we all win. I mean, and I just have to say, and I do always say this, if I ask a hundred academics, would you like to commercialize your IP? Then typically roughly a hundred will go, no, that sounds boring, difficult. I've got papers to write. I've got research to do. I've got students to teach. So no. If I ask the same hundred academics, would you like your research to make a difference in the world? 100% will say yes. I've never met a researcher who would answer no to that question. If you ask the same hundred academics, would you like to meet someone who's interested in your research? 100% positive response. So the narrative... Where sometimes we've been going, oh, commercializing IP, and academics are going, la, 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 You change it to your research makes a difference in the world, and I'm going to introduce you to people who are really interested in your research and might help you to change the world. It just, with some semantic change of language. and I, I changes I, the whole <laughs> dynamic is what you're saying. It yeah. absolutely is, and that's what I mean. When I, when I said my philosophy, that's my philosophy. It's align with the academics to help them do the things that they actually want to do. Because I don't know any academics who came into research to write papers. They came into research in, in order to push forward the boundaries of human knowledge. And the paper has just become a proxy for that. And sometimes I worry it's become so powerful a proxy that the paper has become more important than what they actually learn. And it, you know, in my worldview, if you can get what they learn into use in partnership with someone who's going to do something cool, useful, valuable, beneficial with it, isn't that the best job in the world? Absolutely. Definitely. So, and speaking of the best job in the world and, and where you are now at Calist, I'm, I'm curious about your team. Can you tell us a little bit about your office and how it's structured? Yeah, I mean, the the main areas that we have are we've got the tech transfer office and that's headed by Sean Flanagan, who's here at the conference. He came to us from the National University of Singapore. He looks after all of the intellectual property, all of the licensing, but he also looks after a program that we introduced about two years ago, which we call the Research Translation Grants. I arrived at KAUST and we had all this brilliant research going on and we didn't have a single penny for translation. We didn't have a single engineer whose job it was to take the technology and move it towards application. It was all focused on the fundamental research. So the university's put in place, it's $25 million a year, which is specifically to take technologies from TRL level one to TRL level six. TRL level six being the point at which an investor or 
an entrepreneur or a company might be able to justify to their management stakeholders that this is a technology that they should now be investing in. So, uh, you know, a lot of it is about taking the technology from milligram to kilo or sometimes from kilo to ton. And it's in areas as diverse as cryogenic carbon capture. It's in converting oil into chemicals. It's in developing more effective coral restoration technology. You know, it's all these areas, back to food, water, energy, environment. And taking the technology from being a brilliant piece of research that shows a new mechanism or pathway or process or whatever and getting it to the point where a commercial entity would be able to engage with it. And that goes right back to my thing about, would you like to meet someone who's interested in your research? Why don't you speak to them before you do the research translation? They can inform and advise. I hate industry-directed research, unless it's in industry. I love industry-informed research. Right. So if the person who's got... The question that we'll always ask the academics is, if you do this and it's successful, who's going to be interested? And why don't you speak to them before you do the research rather than after you do the research? Okay, so that was... So Sean looks after this program. We've now done two and a half rounds of it. And it has genuinely increased the engagement of and interest of the faculty in the whole translation process. So that's that. We've got the Entrepreneurship Centre, which trains three and a half thousand entrepreneurs a year. That's a large number. This is a university that has under 2,000 students. So we're actually doing entrepreneurship training for 20 universities across the kingdom. Yeah, that's that's impressive. That's a quite a number of... Uh, I, and the, the quality of the stuff that they do, and I'm so proud of this because it was happening before I even arrived, um, is absolutely phenomenal. You know, the talent, the passion, the expertise, the intelligence, just the the energy that comes from this thing. Um, I see this as being the community of entrepreneurs who in 20, 25, 30 years time are going to be the deep tech entrepreneurs who are going to be engaging with the university and dragging the technology out. We are still at that point of trying to push the technology out. Success comes when industry is pulling the technology out. Um, we also have an investment fund. Um, it's $8 million a year, but we've just had approval for the creation of a $200 million deep tech investment fund. Again, just to, to take things to scale. Remember, I talked about the ambition. Yeah, that's of- a pretty significant <laughs> fund. That's impressive. Um, so we, we've got that, and that is about two things. One, taking the technologies we've developed and startups we've developed to the next stage, but also about attracting deep tech companies into the kingdom. The slowest part about creating a deep tech ecosystem is that maturation, you know, that having the seasoned entrepreneurs who've been around the the course a number of times, they've got the scars on their back, they know the people, they know what to do. Learning that yourself with 20, 25-year-old entrepreneurs is going to take a long time. Bring a cohort of them in, attracting them with world-class research, access to capital, access to technology, access to the biggest 
most rapidly developing economy in the region, attracting them with the, the research park. We've got a research park. That's the other thing that we've got. Uh, when I arrived, we had 40 tenants on the research park. We've now got over 70. So some of them are our startup companies. Some are our spin-out companies. Increasingly, we're spinning companies in, both internationally, but also from the kingdom itself. Companies saying, we want to be part of that community. We want to have access to that talent, that capital, that infrastructure and everything else. So that was the investment fund, the tech transfer office, entrepreneurship. I, I just let, let me tell you this. Um, about two years ago, we said that we're going to develop a massive open online course in entrepreneurship in Arabic. It was the first MOOC to come out of KAUST. Wow. So the first MOOC out of KAUST came out of the innovation department, right? Innovation. Um, very proud of that. We had a target at the time of 10,000 registrants in the first year. We launched it in June of last year. Uh, it was launched with Lubna al Olean, who is the chairman of Saab Bank. Um, Amin Al Nasser, who's the CEO and chairman of Aramco, and Andrew Liveris, who until recently was the CEO and chairman of Dow. They, they supported us in the launch of this thing. When we went live, um, I think it was the beginning of August, within the first month, we had 71,000 young Arabs sign up to and this course. And you were course. targeting 10,000? We were targeting 10,000. Yeah, so that's so incredible. People have made the snidey comment of, ah, bad target. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were aiming way too low. We were aiming way too low. And the number now is over 100,000. That's so, incredible. So Congratulations. I've, thank you. I mean, it, it was the team that did it. It was absolutely brilliant. The execution was absolutely brilliant. But we've now got 100,000 young Arab volunteer entrepreneurs who are engaged with KAUST in a way that they never had before. And so what we're hoping is that they, that will sort of start the qualification, that that qualifies these young entrepreneurs. The, the fact that it's in Arabic, I think, is game-changing. Um, it, it means that kids and a lot of the people who've signed up are in their 30s, you know, it's not all 12, 15, 18-year-olds. There are people in their mid-30s who are that's signing up for yeah, this thing. Yeah, that's interesting that they're that interested at uh -huh. that age. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, and so we're creating this community of people who are now learning about innovation with cows, and we bring them on the journey and hopefully bring them into our startup accelerator called Takadam, which in Arabic means going forward. Um, we do in partnership with SAB, the Saudi Arabian British Bank. Um, and I, interest declared, believe it to be the premium accelerator in the region. The quality of stuff that comes through this is incredible. We, two years ago, we had the Takadam Showcase, which is like the, the 25 finalists were doing a pitch. And we had it in the auditorium in Kaust, which holds a thousand people. We had 1100 people turn up. 
So it was literally standing room only. So again, I'm just telling you this because it's that the level of interest in this stuff within the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's incredible that how the, the numbers that you're getting, there's tremendous interest. And this is from a tiny little university that's 13 years old on the banks of the Red Sea on the edge of the, the Saudi desert. With COVID, obviously, we had to go remote. So when it came to doing the showcase, it had to be done by Zoom online. We got 11,000. I didn't know that Zoom could even handle that number. Well, it can. Apparently it can, <laughs> yes. Okay. Learn something new. Not that I ever get 11,000 people on a Zoom call, but... Well, maybe you will now. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I want to try that. Uh, and so... Yeah, again, just stressing that everything we do is about building the capability, whether it's develop, developing the technology towards the user or developing the user towards the technology. It's just building those connections between the people doing the research and the people who would be able to use it. Wow, Kevin, it sounds like there's a tremendous amount going on there at Faustin. And I'm kind of curious about metrics. So if you could and wouldn't mind sharing with us, I'm curious about things like um, invention disclosure numbers, patent filing numbers, royalty income, things like that, if you can share that with us. Yeah, I mean, we get of the order of about 180 invention disclosures per annum. We file, you know, about 100 patents per annum. Our licensing numbers, um, when Sean and I arrived, Kaust had done 15 deals in the first 10 years. Um, in the following year, we did 16 deals. So that's not plus one, that's plus 16. The following year, we did 25. The following year, we did 36. I think this year, we're heading for 50. Wow, congratulations. I, I, yeah, I, and again, they, this is about, you know, Sean and I focused on moving from activity. They, this is how I view metrics. You've got activity, you've got outcomes, you've got impact. Activity is a necessary but not sufficient condition. If you're not getting invention disclosures, you have nothing to work with. If you're not meeting, if you're not having cups of tea with SMEs, you're not going to know anyone. But just counting that stuff. The trouble with it is it's all entirely within my control. Therefore, I can game it. And if I can game it, anyone can game it. And therefore, it's not a meaningful metric. So the next level is what I call outcomes. Very simple definition. A third party makes a legal, financial or contractual commitment to the university. That's really important because it means a third party has had to make a decision. I can no longer control this. I, can, I cannot make them sign a license agreement or a research contract or anything. But again, that's necessary but not sufficient. You've now got contracts in place. The real thing that I'm interested in is, so what have they done with it? They've licensed the technology. Have they produced a new product? service? Are they employing new people? Are they contributing to GDP? Are they contributing to happiness, healthiness, wellness, greenness, all of those things that we all intuitively know are impact, are hell of a difficult to measure. The closest anyone's got to it was the REF impact exercise in the UK, where they had like 7,000 case studies. Absolutely brilliant in terms of being able to show 
Research happened there and impact happened there. Problem with it is it's retrospective, right? It's telling you the impact that resulted from research that was done sometimes in 1993. And the other issue I've got with it is it's measuring the performance of someone else. If someone takes you, I could have the best research in the world, the best technology in the world, the best protected IP in the world, and do the best licensing agreement in the world. But if the CEO of the licensee falls out with his board, zero impact. Therefore, I'm punished when I have no control. And sometimes I'm credited when I have no controls. But you're measuring the other people's performance, which is never a good metric. And the third issue I've got about it is the timescales that we're talking about. In 1993, when people were doing the research that were now telling the stories about the impact, no one was talking about impact. No one said, oh, what impact are you going to have in 2022? And therefore, you know, how can you be measured on something that was, to a certain extent, you know, a, a chaotic accidental benefit that flows from the research rather than it being a specific objective of the research? So that's why metrics are hell of a hard. Activity is insufficient. Outcomes, I think, are the best proxy we've got because we have a degree of control, uh, but we need a third party to make an objective decision. But impact is the ultimate, and I think we as a profession should spend more of our time thinking about how do we actually track, measure, take account of, and contextualize the impact. Yeah, I've heard that from other guests on my podcast. And I think, um, I think that's getting more and more traction all the, the time. Uh, and I think there's really a movement on that. And it's going to be interesting to see if that movement continues to go. And I, I think it will, because I hear a, a lot of the smaller universities really focusing more on the impact rather than the number of invention disclosures, patent filings and royalty income. So. So, Kevin, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you what you think is most important in managing innovations to give them the greatest opportunity for success. Uh, keep an open mind. Keep an open mind. Um, I often describe the system we work in as chaotic, right? And I, I mean chaotic in the scientific sense, a cause and effect system for which the outcomes are so unpredictable as to effectively be random. So if the outcomes are so unpredictable as to effectively be random, it's very difficult to manage an effectively random system. So I work on the principle that if you lower the barriers to knowledge flow in every possible area, lower the legal, the financial, the bureaucratic barriers, then the possibility of the knowledge finding its way, and you know, finding its way into the hands of someone who can use it goes up. And being a chemist, you know, I'm very statistically driven. The more knowledge that flows into the system, the higher the probability that something's going to happen. The lower the activation energy of getting the knowledge into those hands, the higher the probability of impact happening. So, you know, the, there is no magic bullet, um, but if you make the university highly accessible, if you align the whole innovation agenda with the interests of the academics, as I said, if you make sure that the barriers to engagement, you know, way back in the day, I 
I've been in places where an academic wasn't allowed to meet an industry partner without a lawyer being present. I'm a lawyer. I can see where that could happen. I've seen that a lot in my career, too. Yeah, unfortunately, I had to pause there because I was like, oh, yeah, I've been there. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, universities are very conservative organizations. they, They just want to make sure that, oh, we don't want anyone to rip us off. But, you know, it's a, it's a clumsy analogy. But if you went on a first date with someone and took along a lawyer to discuss a prenup. <laughs> prenup or some type of dating agreement, <laughs> yeah, he'd uh, still be single. What, what message does that yeah. send to the person? It's like, okay, you don't trust me and this is just going to be. Absolutely. But if you say, you know what, go and talk about your stuff. Don't, don't disclose anything confidential. Yeah, the barriers go up right away. Lawyers, we have a great uh, ability to be ruffle feathers to get people on edge immediately. Uh, Again, the same as I say about IP. I love lawyers. Some of my best friends literally are lawyers. But you have to make sure that you're applying those skills, competencies and the things that they need to do at the right point in the process. Absolutely. And if you do it at the wrong point in the process, you you just destroy the process. Absolutely. Yeah, I I agree because sometimes I've had clients who will ask me, to sit in and it's a business meeting and I'm like, you know what? I think it's just better if the business people talk because I'm going to show up and people are going to hedge their bets and they're, they're, people are not going to want to talk. And I think as long as everybody knows what the game rules are, it, it's better sometimes to just keep the lawyers out of it, quite frankly. Yeah. And bring the lawyers in when the lawyers need to do that thing. Exactly. That lawyers do. Exactly. So I wanted to Go back, Kevin, and ask you more about startups there at the university and, and how your office supports startups that come out of the research there. Yeah, we support startups that come out of the research and also startups that don't come out of the research. Right? Uh, as I said, we train three and a half thousand entrepreneurs a year. Takadam will typically have 50 startups coming out. And in the Takadam program, as I said, we do that with the Saudi British Bank. It, it is entrepreneur-led. And at the end of the whole thing, the top 10 companies are given an award of $120,000. And it's a grant, it's a prize. You know, so there's a major incentive for them to do it. Um, But we have more people applying to our startup programs than we can possibly accommodate. This is back to my 71,000, 100,000. I was, that's why I wanted to ask the question because I was kind of wondering how, quite frankly, you were handling all this because it's a tremendous volume. Yeah. And what we're doing is we're using the MOOC as a means of qualifying. And, you know, it it can be used as part of the judging process for the people who are going to become part of the startup. Um, And so that's a sort of entrepreneur led side of the house. Sometimes they use Kaust IP. Sometimes they bring their own ideas. Sometimes they actually use IP from other companies, companies that they work for. And for us, this is about the experiential learning of getting them to think innovatively, entrepreneurially. Um, You know, I'm very much of the view that everyone should have some entrepreneurship training, but not everyone should become an entrepreneur. But, you know, it's like, give it a go. Most people won't want to do it. Most people are never going to be a startup CEO. But having gone through the process and learned about it, then you're, 
you've got a different set of skills and a different way of thinking about things. So that's on the, the entrepreneurship side of the house. When it comes to university startups, we would typically want anyone who's going to be involved in the startup to go through that entrepreneurship training as well. You know, just learn about that. Um, often the lead academic does not want to have an entrepreneurial role at all. They want to be chief technology advisor, da, 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 da. And so therefore it would be their PhD student or their postdoc or the research scientist who would become the entrepreneurial lead. And that for me is the sweet spot. That's where, you know, you have the combination of one of the leading scientists in the world providing their technical input, but you've got someone who's, who gets up in the morning driven to make a difference through a startup company doing that thing. Because I, again, when I arrived at Kaus, there was a, a sort of implicit expectation that every member of faculty would start a company. Because there's this mythology that in other universities, oh, faculty start companies all the time. And I asked the question, why? Why would you do that? Why would you take someone who has spent 20, 30, 40 years becoming the best in the world at doing scientific research and ask them to become a startup entrepreneur. I would rather they continued being the best research scientist in the world. And they, if we can build teams around them and both, that back to, as I was saying, the sweet spot is if you've got the PhD or the postdoc or the research scientist doing that part, um, I told you about our investment fund so we can actually invest in our startup companies. Typically, it will be 500000 up to $2 million. And with the new fund coming online, we're going to be able to invest five to $10 million just to... That's quite a bit of funding. That's pretty impressive. Yes, it is. Um, and you know, we were talking about why did I go to Kaus? It's being able to do these things, being able to do those experiments that we all in this profession want to do. What would happen if you were able to fund translational research? What would happen if you were able to invest? What would happen if you were able to build a community of 100,000 entrepreneurs? Sounds like the basis for a really good paper at some point, to be honest with you. (laughs) I'm too busy doing the experiment to be able to write about it, but it genuinely is. And I mean, all credit to the king for his vision and the university for its ambition and the kingdom for being a brilliant place to be trying these things out, we are able to try things and do parallel experiments that I've never been able to contemplate in previous jobs. And trust me, I know how lucky I am. Trust me, I know how lucky I am to to be able to do that just because of the stage of the university, the ambition of the university, the ambition of the country. And so I'm hoping that over the next two or three years, we are going to be able to say, you know what? Translation fund, boom, that that really does take the technology from the publication to a 250 ton a day cryogenic carbon capture unit operating at NEO. Uh, yeah, that would be incredible. Well, I'm maybe you should think about getting an intern who can help you write that paper because I think there would be a lot of people who'd be interested in it. I'm sure you can find an intern or you know, a student who'd be interested. So. I, well, through you, I'll, I'll ask for any volunteers. Just get in touch. <laughs> there you go. 
Um, Kevin, I wanted to ask you, you talked a little bit about corporate partners before and, and not a whole lot there in, in Saudi Arabia. So I'm curious, um, for the ones that you have had some involvement with, um, can you talk about the role that they've played in tech transfer there at Kaust? Um, the corporate partners, I mean, the, the big ones for us are obviously Saudi Aramco, Sabic, and Dow. Those are the three big corporate partners who all have, you know, established R&D facilities on our campus. And they, I, I see them as partners for impact. That's how I describe them. They're the ones who are actually going to create the new product, create the new service, create the new jobs. And therefore, having them involved as early as possible, having them speaking to the academic as early as possible, having, you know, shared resources across our labs and their labs just means that the understanding of where are we going with this technology. I mean, we had one literally this week. Um, the, the first uh, field test that we'd done with Saudi Aramco has now qualified a new technology that Saudi Aramco are probably going to take into the field. Wow. Coming out That's of incredible. one of our research labs. So it, it genuinely is that partnership. If you view industry as in the past, you know, when I started in this profession, industry was often viewed as the competition or the enemy with whom we'd go into battle over who owns the IP, what's the upfront payment, what's the royalty rate. Yes, I, that's still in some parts of tech transfer, still the way, unfortunately, it's viewed. Not all, but still a lot. I, and I say absolutely categorically, we cannot deliver impact without them. Therefore, let's work with them. And six, the money will follow. You know, if it's successful, the money will go, oh, what if we don't get the IP agreement in place beforehand? If we don't get the relationship in place beforehand, there's not going to be a technology generating any revenues at all. And that goes right back to the easy access IP philosophy of, okay, we, we are now committed to get the research into your hands so you can do something useful with it. Please, you know, in good faith and with goodwill, work with us. And, I mean, no, no one wants to stitch up a university. It's a bad look, right? A university does not want to stitch up a company. It's a very, very bad look. And therefore, I always say the only deal that satisfies both sides is something that's fair and reasonable. And so let's worry about fair and reasonable once we get to the point of something to actually negotiate over. But if we spend the next 18 months negotiating the confidentiality agreement that's going to allow us to have the first conversation, that we're wasting everybody's time. So, yeah, corporate partners, partners for impact. They are the ones who will go and create the jobs and products and services and the impact that we want to see. And if they are successful, they will, in general, give us credit for it. And the credit is the thing. Another of my lines, you know, in, in industry, reputation follows money. In universities, money follows reputation. So the most valuable thing we as any university has is its reputation. So if you become the university that's known for brilliant research, easy to work with, committed, loyal partner who will help you to do your job in industry, everything else will follow from that. 
Absolutely. Yeah, very well said. Um, and switching gears again, fun part of the podcast, I, I always like to ask my guests about success stories. So could you share with us some of your successful technology startups, spin outs, anything you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, the, there are two that I'd mentioned. One is a company called Red Sea Farms, right? They are literally growing food in the desert. And it's a combination of two areas of technology, right? The first, it, it was founded by a plant, a plant biologist and an engineer. So the plant biologist has developed strains of tomatoes and other fruits and vegetables that are tolerant to salt water, right? We're on the banks of the Red Sea. We've got loads of salt water. We ain't got quite so much fresh water. A second, the engineer developed a, an air conditioning system, a cooling system for greenhouses that uses salt water. So between the two of them, they have reduced the amount of fresh water necessary to grow crops, tomatoes of all things, by 95%. That's pretty amazing. They, they have just done, I, I think it's their second round of fundraising. They have interest from around the world. There are many, many dry places in the world that have lots of salt water. So they have gone from being, as I say, a plant biologist and an engineer with a glint in their eye to a startup company that's generating international investment and they're looking at diversifying into different product types as well. They continue to work on capsicums and cucumbers and, and all of that stuff. The other one, which I think is a, a, a fabulous story, is a company called Wyakit. Right, And this was two PhD students, two female PhD students um, at Kaust. They were doing work on biofouling of membranes. And they developed this formulation that was very good. They thought, we could use this as a cleaning product. We could use this as a detergent. We could use this as a laundry product. So they formed a company called Wirekit, which was developing, specializing in travel laundry, right? If you travel, you know, sometimes your suitcase doesn't arrive, so you're, you find yourself having to wear the same clothes for two days. This was the product to remove stains and odors. Oh, wow. And everything else. It was just your, your emergency laundry in, in your pocket. They were working with a number of hotel chains, um, to have these as the sort of product you would have in your room, along with, you know, your toothbrush and your vanity kit and everything else. Um, along came COVID. Guess which were the two industries that were immediately hit? Travel and yeah. hotels. Yeah, tough time for them, that's for sure. Tough time. Um, so what these uh, two founders did was they tested the formulation on covid and found it was 99.99% effective in destroying COVID within 30 seconds. So now they've got a COVID product that they are shipping to Swissport to use it to disinfect their international airliners. And you know, I talked about that cause and effect system from which the outcomes are so unpredictable as to effectively be random. That was a great pivot. No one, it, it was the perfect pivot. No yeah. one could have predicted, well, some people did predict a pandemic, but no one could have predicted that they would have to do that. But it was that they could have given up. They, they could have said, right, we wait Absolutely. until the pandemic's over. But no, 
And they are now, they've got a pilot plant at Kaus, 20,000 litres of this formulation a day being produced at Kaus and they're shipping it. And I, I just think it, it's the perfect example of that chaotic story that if you remain open-minded, you remain flexible and you're ready to pivot, then you can get there. Yeah, that really is a great story. Congratulations to them because like you said, it w- would would have been very easy to give up at that point and, you know, stay, if, especially if they were stuck in the mindset that it was going to be travel in the hotels and things like that, just as a. Yeah. And, and the fact that, you know, it's two female PhD students, one is Mexican, one is Colombian, who have come to Coast to do the research. So, you know, that international connectivity thing that we're talking about. Yeah. It, it, it's just got all of those elements of being international benefiting the kingdom, benefiting humanity based on cow's research. So, Kevin, with great success also comes challenges. What would you say your office's two biggest challenges are? Being able to address everything, right? This is both an opportunity and a challenge, obviously. But because there hasn't been a history of tech transfer in the kingdom, there isn't a community. There isn't that... You know, here we are at ASDP, I describe it as the European group hug, where we all get together and we, we talk about how misunderstood we are and how, how we can make things better. So there, much of the, just that social infrastructure that I've been used to, I mean, I've been on the board of Autumn and KCA and Praxis Unico and everything else. And I genuinely see massive value in that community of practice, just being able to say, I've got a situation. Have you ever had a situation like this before? I don't have that in the kingdom. I can still tap into the international community, but that local context isn't there. So uh, that's one of the things that we're doing. We've developed our own internship program to train people in tech transfer for other universities. The second biggest challenge is the ambition and expectations, right? These things take a long time. We all know it takes a long time. The expectations in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia at the moment is that everything should be done really, really, really quickly. So we've got everything we need except patience. We've got everything we need except time. And when you're in that situation, you know, a bit of luck and one of the companies suddenly goes and you never know which one is going to be and everything is grand. If not, then the, where's the unicorn? Where, where's, where, where's the world changer? Where's the taxol? Where's the lyrica? Where's the, and the fact we don't have a medical school means that that's. That's going to be even more challenging increasingly for you. Yes. Likely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so those would be the two things. We need to build that social infrastructure and we need time for the technology to mature, for the entrepreneurs to mature, for the corporates to mature. And time is not a commodity that's very, yeah, there isn't much of that in the king. Yeah, it goes back to patience, like you said. So, Kevin, does KAUS have any programs to help encourage and assist women and other traditionally underrepresented inventors and entrepreneurs? And if so, could you talk about those in a little bit of detail? Uh, yeah, I can. Uh, and yes, we do. 
But before I tell you about the specific programs that we've got, I'll, I'll just tell you some of the facts. And that is that we, as a science and technology university, run all of these competitive programs, accelerator programs, you know, the hackathons, the boot camps. And regularly, if not more frequently than not, when it comes to these competitive applications, over 50% will be Saudi females. That's great. And remember, we're talking about this is a science and technology university in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I never got those numbers when I was in Australia or in the UK. So that, again, is back to part of the context. The young Saudi females are, they want to do this stuff. And they're fabulous. They're they're absolutely fabulous. So in terms of that pool that we're working with, it's already happening, you know, but I'm not complacent. And we do have programs. Um, we, we have an internship for young Saudi graduates who will come and spend 18 months in our office learning about tech transfer and how to do it so that we're developing a pool of young Saudi female tech transfer people. There's another program that we run at the moment. It's actually with the U.S. consulate in Jeddah and UT Austin. Uh, UT Austin got in touch with us about a program that they heard about from the US consulate in Jeddah to support young Saudi female entrepreneurs and asked if we'd like to be their partner. So we applied and apparently this application was the number one application. So we and UT Austin are training a cohort of about 40 young Saudi female entrepreneurs, they'll have some of the entrepreneurship training in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and some of it is going to be with their partners in the United States. That's great. Uh, and, you know, so so that's what I mean. We, we've got a great starting point in terms of the what the young females want to do, but we're building upon that some more formal training in terms of tech transfer internships and entrepreneurship training, especially for women. That's fantastic. So I also want to switch gears again, Kevin, and ask you about the organizations like uh, ASTP, LES, Autumn, and things that you and your team are involved in and the value you think they add. Um, Personally speaking, and again, declaring an interest, I think they're massively valuable. I served... Three times on the board of Autumn. Um, I was the chair of Unico at one point. Uh, I've been VP metrics and surveys for Autumn, for Praxis Unico in the UK, ASTP, and KCA in Australasia. So, I, as I say, yes, I do see huge value in them. Um, just about I believe that tech transfer and universities around the world are all exactly the same. And therefore, we've got a global network of brains that means that we should be able to to help each other out. So what's your view on credentialing? I'm kind of curious. Things like RTTP, uh, you're laughing. If, if if listeners could see he's laughing, I think he has a similar view as as Autumn and Praxis RL and ASTP. Well, well, again, declaring an interest, I was the founding chairman of ATTP. I, I I worked with the working group that involved Autumn ASTP KCA at Praxis Unico, 
Um, and I believe I was the first applicant for RTTP. So, yeah, I think it's hugely important. Um, it, it's effectively, it, you know, we talk about tech transfer as a profession. It does not yet have all of the things that a profession needs. A professional body. That's what ATTP was created to be, the global you know, professional body. The body of knowledge. We have huge amounts of knowledge, codification of that knowledge, um, and also clear career paths and professional development pathways for people coming into this profession. You know, back in the day when I started it, it was populated by enthusiastic amateurs, right? who were making up as we go along. And that's perfectly fine. I still think there is space for the enthusiastic amateur. But if you're going to talk about being a profession, you've got to start thinking about 10 years from now, 20 years from now. If it's a profession, what are the things that we need to put in place? You know, And the, the parallel I've always drawn is, at some point in the past, the medical profession was full of enthusiastic amateurs, making it up as they go along. Uh, the legal profession was made up of enthusiastic amateurs making it up as they go along, but then you require codification and regulation and da-da-da-da-da. Because if you went into the hospital for an operation tomorrow and they said, we can either give you this guy who's done a degree and an internship and four years training or an enthusiastic amateur who fancies having a go, which one are you going to choose? Exactly. Yep. And so I, I did and I do believe that credentialing the professional body, ATTP, is an essential step in the development of this as a global profession. Well, Kevin, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests, if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would that be? <sighs> the three wishes. Uh, a unicorn tomorrow <laughs> would be nice just to... You know, just to, to keep the wolves. Exactly. I was going to say it would uh, help uh, maybe take some pressure off. Yeah. I would like to materialize out of thin air a cohort of 100 seasoned entrepreneurs who've been down the road before who say, we want to move to Cowston to become involved in that ecosystem. So it really is about the ecosystem maturing and being able to graft things on that's just going to bring it to that point faster. Well, I hope you get your two wishes and hopefully they'll come for you sooner rather than later. Well, Kevin, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? At kevin.cullen at koust.edu.sa. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Kevin. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, 
Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.